0: So with this in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for guidance as we look into his word together. And Now, our Father, we are coming into your presence and we are thankful for the way in which you've been guiding us through these months in 1 John. We've seen the powerful connection to the gospel of John and the, in particular, Jesus' teachings in that upper room. The great linkage between one and the other. But the greatest linkage has to take place between your word and our hearts. We've got to take your truth and press it into everyday practical action. Your our action plan. So, Father, we're turning to you now and we're asking that you give us the necessary insight to make a difference in this world and all for your glory. Every verse is yours. Every word in every verse is yours, and every word of every verse has a relevance in the relationship we have to you and to others. So these minutes you've given us to be together in the comings and goings of a July vacation time period, warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the news media is calling it the chain of love. And when Jessica and Derek Simmons first saw the beachgoers pausing to stare toward the water, the young couple just assumed someone had spotted a shock. It was a Saturday evening, after all, peak summer season in Panama City Beach. For overheated Florida tourists to cross paths with curious marine life. And they noticed flashing lights by the boardwalk. Police struck on the sand and nearly a dozen bobbing heads about 100 yards beyond the beach crying desperately for help. Katie Mettler of the Washington Post writes, Six members of a single family, four adults and two young boys, and four other swimmers have been swept away by powerful and deceptive rip currents churning below the water's surface. My wife Pam had alerted me to this story, and so I looked it up, and I noted that these people are not drowning today, uh, Jessica Simmons thought. She told the Panama City News-Herald, it's not happening, we are going to get them out. Well, we're told she's a strong swimmer and fearless in the face of adversity. But others had tried to reach them, and each previous rescue attempt had only stranded more people. There was no lifeguard on duty. Law enforcement on the scene had opted to wait for a rescue boat People on the beach had no rescue equipment. Only boogie boards, surfboards, and their arms and legs, when the cry went out, form a human chain. Roberta Erstri was among those caught in the rip currents. From 100 yards away in the Gulf of Mexico, between crashing waves and gulps of salt water, she heard the shouting, she told the Washington Post reporter, and by then, Usre and an other eight people, stranded with her, had already been in the water for nearly 20 minutes, fighting for their lives. Israe and the others had ventured into the water to rescue her two sons, Noah, 11, Stephen, 8, who had gotten separated from their family while chasing waves on their boogie boards. Soon, Israe, who had heard her boys' cries from the beach, was also caught in the rip currents followed in close succession by her 27-year-old nephew, 67-year-old mother, 31-year-old husband, another unidentified couple, struggled to tread water nearby. The tide knocked every bit of energy out of us, she said. But then came the human chain. It began with just five volunteers, then 15, then dozens and it kept expanding. Jessica and Derek Simmons swam past the 80 or so human links of this chain. Some who could not swim, headed straight for the Earth's rays using surf and boogie boards to aid their rescue efforts. I got to the end and I I know I'm a really good swimmer, Jessica Simmons told the news herald. I practically live in a pool. I, I knew I could get out there and get to them She and her husband started with the children, passing Noah and Stephen back along the human chain of love, which passed them all the way to the beach, the writer puts it. By the time Jessica Simmons reached her sway, the 34-year-old mother could hardly keep her head above water. I'm going to die this way, she thought to herself. My family's going to die this way. I just can't do it. Ursra remembered Simmons coaxing her to carry on. I blacked out. I couldn't do it anymore, she said. She woke up on the sand to the sound of more screams in the water. Someone yelled that Ray's mother, Barbara Franz, still in the water, was having a heart attack. Simmons told the news hero that Franz's eyes were rolled back. At one point, the 67-year-old woman told the rescuers, "Just let her go. Save themselves." But instead, Earthrae's husband and nephew held Franz's body up as they struggled to keep their heads above water and make their way through the chain. And that's when the chain got the biggest, Earthrae said. Roughly 80 people, linking up wrists, legs, arms. If they were there, they were helping. And after nearly an hour after they first started struggling, just as the sun prepared to set, all ten of the stranded swimmers were safely back on shore, and the entire beach began to applaud. It was the beachgoers, and the grace of God's will, Ursary said. I am thankful for this chain of love. That's why we are here today. And when I processed that story, I knew that 1 John 4, 17 through 21 was imprinted all over it. For you see, you are looking at various dimensions of love here in these verses. An extraordinary sense in which God is reaching out to and through others to impact people. It seems as though in many ways what sin has done is created, for lack of a better phrase, a riptide effect, pulling people further and further away from where they should be in relationship to God and one another. What these verses do now is to counter that effect. So what I want to do with you is to draw two significant expressions of love that are found in these verses as we go word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, to try to understand the significance of what God is communicating to you and to me. And the first flows out of verse 17 and 18. We're going to phrase it like this. That when considering the love of God, note with me the expression, the expression of God's love toward us, toward you, toward me. It's highly directional. Now notice how this begins. By this is love perfected with us. Now you're a thinking person, and immediately you begin to pro- ponder this phrase, by this. What does he mean by this, and what is he referencing? Last week, what we considered was the mutual abiding that occurs in relationship of God to us, us to God. We are in Christ, Christ is in us, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But what propels that dynamic, that mutual abiding? Well, consider the abiding that takes place within the Godhead. In particular, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Hit the pause button on that verse, and I want you to process something we'll reference now and then in this little study together. God is Trinitarian. That means God the Father loves God the Son infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably. God is Trinitarian. The Son loves the Father infinitely, eternally, unchangeably. God the Father, God the Son, love the Holy Spirit. You can see where we start going with all this as we start to work out the personhood of the Godhead. Now, God is love. God is sinless. But God did not cocoon within the Trinity when it comes to matters of infinite, eternal, unchangeable love. And here is the astounding feature of the phrase, God is love. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, who expresses this love within the Trinity, chose to express it outside of the Trinity by extending it via the second member of the Trinity through the cross of Jesus Christ toward sinful humanity. The sinless Godhead chose not to keep the God-like love, the God-expressive love within, but expressed it without via the cross. To understand the love of God at the cross, you've got to understand the essence of who God is. And once you have worked out who God is in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it takes, then, the natural linkage to continue on with 9 and 10. In this, in verse 9, the love of God was made manifest among us, this incredible love that did not cocoon within the Godhead. Now, the sinless expressing love to the sinful. God sent his only son, in verse 9, into the world so that we might live Through him, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. There's Christmas in July for you. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But propitiation deals with the wrath of God, being satisfied by the second member of the Trinity. How can a loving God be an angry God? These are not contradictory ideas. This involves complementary truths. The wrath of God comes down upon the sinless one second member of the Trinity so that the love of God could be expressed through the second member of the Trinity. And now redemption occurs when we have seen the finished work of Jesus Christ on that cross, secured for you, secured for me, the ultimate act of love. All this stands behind that opening phrase, by this. All that has preceded this verse needs to be understood because this is one of the most remarkable chapters about love ever penned. Right there in your scriptures. So now you take that dimensional love of the vertical and the horizontal, the mutual abiding tied back then to both the wrath of God and the love of God, not contradictory but complementary for the sake of salvation for you and for me and now you're, you almost feel like your breath's being taken away. That this kind of God would not cocoon and just simply reserve this love self and for the Trinity, but would extend it
1: outward to sinful humanity,
0: that gives you perspective, and it gives me perspective regarding what comes next by this is love perfected with us, because this is rooted in cross work. Christ so when jesus on that cross said it is finished this is where the whole concept then of love perfected needs to be understood by this is love perfected with us so now we've got this sense of the significance of the completion of christ's finished work on that cross so then you add so that so what so that the person who is practical in their thinking so that we might have confidence now that word confidence that you see there, and you are still in verse 17, is the very same word that was used in chapter 2, verse 28, to describe confidence with regard to Christ's coming, his second coming. Confidence in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, regarding prayer. So that no matter what your situation you find yourself in, you can with confidence, still go before your God because of the completion of the work on that cross. Access is now given so that we might have confidence. But you say, for what? For with whom and for when? And here is the astounding thing. For the day of judgment. Now normally people don't link the love of God to the whole matter of the judgment that's tied with God. you come across, say, a story like Charles Finney's, who at the time was a young lawyer sitting in a village law office in the state of New York. Biographer tells us that Finney had just come into the old squire's office. It was very early in the morning, now reading. He was all alone when the Lord began to tug on his heart. Finney. What are you going to do when you finish your course? Answer. Put out a shingle and practice law. Then what? Get rich. Then what? Retire.
1: Then what? Pause. Die. Then what? And we're told that the words came tremblingly, the judgment.
0: Finney headed off into the woods, about a half mile away, the biographer tells us. All day he prayed and vowed that he would never leave until he had made his peace with God. He saw himself at the judgment bar of God. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence, when? For the day of judgment. He saw himself at the judgment bar of God. For four years he had studied law, and now the vanity of a selfish life, lived for enjoyment for the things of this world, was made clear to him. Literally and figuratively, Finney came out of the woods. And after a long struggle with the higher purpose of living now before him, that it's meant for the glory of God, from that moment blessings untold filled his life. And God used him in a powerful way, not as a lawyer, but one who would communicate the gospel to thousands upon thousands of people over the course of a 50-year period. What had happened? God took the legal aspect of his will, tied it to the sacrificial love of his will, pressed it upon a heart where an individual had to think through first and second comings of Christ. And now when you begin to think about the fact that Jesus Christ said it is finished, and that stands behind everything here with a phrase by this, and then you do the linking By this is love perfected with us. We become aware of the perfection of the cross of Jesus Christ so that we may have confidence when, for the day of judgment, the question is now, have you dealt in your own heart with the, and then what, of life? And so you've got a plan for tomorrow, and you've got a plan for next week. You might have a plan for next year, but then you've got to continuously take this thing further and further out, and then what? Until you reach a point when you experience in a very healthy way the collision of the temporal with the eternal. Most people try to keep the two separate. What God does is offer a realistic matter in the fact that temporal gets swallowed up in the eternal. And that's why it is so significant to understand that the one who said it is finished is the one that offers you eternal life through his finished work. You take a deep breath. You're pondering the significance of the statement, God is love, and that God did not cocoon that love within the Godhead, but he extended the love beyond the sinless ones within the Godhead to the sinful ones of this world. And now you begin to process how this relates to your life and mine. Are you living life with confidence? Day in, day out. Now you do another linking because you're linking verse 17 onward into verse 18 because the fear factor has got to be addressed. And so in verse 18, you move one step further, and here it reads, There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. You see. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Notice then, he says, there is no fear in love. But you say, but Gary, help me to understand the significance of this. What you've got to do is to link that phrase to the cross of Jesus Christ. Not separate that phrase from the cross of Jesus Christ. Because God demonstrated his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when you continuously link 18 back to 17 and you continuously work your way back to 10 and then back to 8 and so on it is that kind of love that produces that kind of confidence it is that kind of love at the cross when applied to the mindset of daily living that casts away then the fear that we have regarding the issues of life because we know that the ultimate issue is the judgment, the day of judgment, which means then that all the other issues that you and I face are minimal in comparison. But if you ask the average person when they're being honest with you about their issues with fear, one might say, well, the fear of loss. Someone else might talk about the fear of the unknown. They open up and say it's the fear of the unexplained. Some are going to talk about their fear of a bad medical report. Others are going to wrestle with the fear of the unfamiliar. But then when they get real serious and they inch to their collision of the temporal with the eternal, there's the fear of dying and the fear of death. But you don't let it end there, you see, because you are doing the chain of love. And then you ask, and then what? And then what? And have you allowed for the eternal to make its way into your soul, into your heart, through the work of Jesus Christ, you see, on the cross? There is no fear in that kind of love that is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, President Roosevelt of a prior generation stated to the united states citizenry there is nothing to fear except fear itself but the biblical student says we can do better in that time period a japanese soldier by the name of shoshi yokoi lived in a cave on the island of guam in which he fled in 1944 when the tides of war began to change Fearing for his life, historian tells us this man stayed hidden for 28 years in the jungle cave coming out only at night. During this long period of time, the self-imposed hermit lived on frogs, rats, snails, shrimp, nuts, mangoes, carried a pair of trousers and a jacket from a burlap-like cloth made from tree bark. Yokoi said that he knew the war was over, it was final, it was complete. Because of leaflets that were scattered through the jungles of Guam, but he couldn't overcome his fear. He was afraid that if he came out of hiding, he'd be executed. But then finally, two hunters came upon him and told him that he need not hide any longer. He was free, and with new clothes to wear and food to eat. He was taken by plane where he belonged. He was taken. He was taken home. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies. To all my fears are gone. We just sang it. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God is the expression from the heart of the one who's put faith and trust in jesus christ you see as savior and as lord so what he's saying now is that this casting out of fear is tied to the matter of redemption at the cross of jesus christ and so we look carefully at this whole matter of how it relates to love i would have thought perhaps perfect power Or maybe for that student that's taking a final exam somewhere, perfect knowledge. But you see, what is being talked about here is not merely power, not merely knowledge, but something of greater significance, God is love. And so all of that is addressed at the cross of Jesus Christ. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. They have not embraced the perfection of the finished work of Jesus Christ upon their cross. Now, what have we done so far? We've talked about the expression of God's love toward us in verse 17 and 18. But now you couple it with the second expression, the expression of God's love not only toward us, but now through us. Verse 19 through 21. It reads, we love because he first loved us. Notice who takes the initiative. It does not read, let me say it again, it does not read, he loves
1: because we first loved him. No. It reads,
0: we love because he first loved us. And now we begin to think about the significance of Trinitarian love, that this Trinitarian love would extend itself so it's not merely within the Trinity, but it is communicated beyond the Trinity via the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's astounding to us, isn't it, that it is in verse 10 that the justice of God and the love of God are merged in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be what? The propitiation for our sins, dealing with God's holy justice, so that we might experience God's holy grace. What they share in common justice and grace is love. And what they share is holiness, the holiness of love shown at the cross of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson puts it this way in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. This process has been going on for some time in this culture. My generation, This is Don now writing. My generation was taught to sing, quote, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, unquote, in which we robustly instructed the Almighty that we do not need another mountain to climb, but we could do with some more love. The hubris, he writes, is staggering. I've underlined what comes next. It has not always been that way. In generations prior, when almost everyone believed in the justice of God, people sometimes found it difficult to believe in the love of God. The teaching of the love of God came as incredibly wonderful good news to them. But nowadays, nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they are unlikely to be surprised. Response Of course, God loves me. He's like that, isn't He? Why shouldn't He love me? I'm lovable.
1: Where's the sin?
0: Where's the need for redemption? How do we embrace the idea of propitiation and this understanding of this difficult doctrine of the love of God? For as C.S. Lewis wrote, he loved us not because we were lovable, but because he is love. We love because he first loved us. It does not read he loves us because we first loved him. And now, and now, he moves dramatically from the vertical to the horizontal, from this expression of love toward us to this expression of love through us. It all fits together with the if anyone of 29. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. There's inconsistency here. It's verbal, but it's not real. Watch out for verbal expressions that lack reality. Here the inward and the outward find a connecting point. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Astounding. And you think about that. My mind went back to the USS Pueblo story captured by the North Koreans years back. 82 surviving crew members thrown into brutal captivity. In one particular instance, 13 of the men were required to sit in rigid manner around a table for hours And then after several hours, the door was violently flung open, and a North Korean guard brutally beat the man in the first chair with the butt of his rifle. And the next day, as each man sat at his assigned place, again the door was thrown open, and the man in the first chair was brutally beaten. On the third day, it happened again to the same man, and knowing the man could not survive, another young soldier took his place. And when the door was flung open, the God automatically beat the new victim, and for weeks, each day, a new man stepped forward to sit in that chair, knowing full well what would happen, until at last the gods gave up in exasperation, they were unable to beat that kind of sacrificial love. Which takes us to the fact that this word love in the Greek, agape, carries with it a selfless sacrificial way of expressing oneself to another Dr. Wayne Grudem put it God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others as you see in our handout so he ends now in verse 21 and you can almost see that the Apostle John is collecting all the various statements and teachings given by Jesus in John 14 through 17 in that upper room experience. This doesn't come natural, does it? And so what we find here is that this is going to be supernatural, and if we are going to do this, it requires the commandment to do so, and this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God, Mark, the word must. Must also love his brother. This is the difficult doctrine of the love of God. This is loving others because of God in all the hard places, among all the hard people in all those hard places. You got a hard person in a hard place. Where verse 21 has got to work through you because of what God has done in working toward you. Judaism knows the story. David McKenna repeats it. Two brothers in Jerusalem shared ownership of a mill for grinding grain. One brother was a bachelor, the other was married with three children. At the end of each day, they took the grain they had milled, divided it equally among separate sacks. One night, the bachelor brother thought, this isn't right. I am alone, don't have much, but my brother has a wife and family. He deserves the larger share. So, sneaking back to the mill, each night he took part of his share and poured it into his brother's sack. Meanwhile, the married brother also thought one night, this isn't fair. When I'm old, I will have children to support me. But my brother will be all alone. He deserves the larger share. So sneaking back to the mill each night, he took part of his share, poured it back into his brother's sack, and then they thought it miraculous to find their sacks refilled each morning. Brother and brother, you see. One night, however, as McKenna puts it, the brothers left home at the same time to sneak back to the mill. And there in the streets of Jerusalem, by coincidence, or was it, they met with their sacks in hand. And instantly, they knew what was happening. And they fell into each other's arms, weeping. And McKenna writes... You can picture God looking down upon the scene saying, and here
1: is where love meets.
0: Whoever loves God must also love his brother. What a powerful way in which the chain of love can be expressed through life groups, through Awana, Through Christian education, through the music ministry, and through the various aspects of the gathered on a Sunday to be gathered through, scattered through the course of the week, as we become one more link in the chain of love. Back to Jessica and Derek. They see the beachgoers pausing to stare toward the water. They simply thought someone spotted a shark. But then there's this dozen or so bobbing heads about 100 yards beyond the beach, crying desperately for help. A powerful, deceptive rip current churning below the water's surface. And then comes the cry. form, a chain, a human chain. The people are rescued. The links held together. The media picks up on the story, and it becomes the talk of a nation. But when a church, with the multiple services and the likes, when a church is at cutting edge, it creates this matter of the chain of love, where the dimensions of the vertical and the horizontal get worked out via the cross of Jesus Christ. People are saved. And when that figurative riptide is working to pull people away, God conquers via the cross of Jesus Christ. And people are drawn to him because of the working of the Holy Spirit, working through God's people, bringing people to saving faith in Christ alone. The chain of love.
1: Let's stand together. You give us modern-day parables,
0: human chains. You give us physical analogies like riptides. You give us the immediate perspective of people drifting away. And the believer sees all this and sees how metaphorically all of this points in the direction to the cross of Jesus Christ where your love is demonstrated. And what stands behind it is the fact that you are loved. And what astounds us is that a Trinitarian love perfect within the Godhead was not kept within the Godhead but expressed to sinful ones like us so that we could be saved by grace through the finished work of Christ on the cross. We praise you for that love. We praise you for who you are. For you alone receive the glory. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. God bless you.